Hi, my name's Grant Fishbook, and I am honored to be the lead teaching pastor here at Christ the King Church in Bellingham, Washington. Thank you so much for choosing to access this online content today. We really hope you'll enjoy this message. One of our values here at Christ the King is biblical face-to-face -face community. And so while we are so excited that you joined us today online, I really want to encourage you. Make sure that this is never a replacement for face-to-face -face biblical community. Your story matters, you matter, and we want to see you get connected in a local church. Now, if you're here in our area, we would love to have you join us at any one of our five campuses. But if you find yourself outside of the Bellingham area, we really want you to get connected into a local church. So we hope and pray that that happens for you very, very soon. I want to welcome everybody to the early service this morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Grant. And uh, I was backstage, and I think some of you almost found your groove. Almost. <laughs> you tried really hard, and that was cool. All right? Thank you for the entertainment. Um, <laughs> I was watching from the side. I'd like to thank you as a church family for your prayers as Laurel and I uh, ventured to New York City earlier this week. Uh, we were privileged to sit with a research team from Columbia University, uh, the Edward Harkness Eye Institute, and four couples, uh, one of whom are the people in those couples has Bietti's crystalline dystrophy, the eye disease that my wife Laurel has battled for 26 years. We had an opportunity to meet with a research team of doctors as well as this group of patients together. And uh, the cool thing is there's actually some really, really cool breakthroughs that have happened. Uh, there's not a treatment yet for Bietti's crystalline dystrophy, but they're moving in that direction. So uh, we're thankful for that. So I want to thank everyone who prayed. Uh, if you don't receive my prayer letter, 
That's where I'm going to lay out all the details from our trip and some very specific prayer requests. We want you to pray for Richard Yang and his wife, Juliana. They're the people who run a company called Reflection Bio, which is a biotech company that's leading this charge. Uh, we need you to pray for them. We need you to pray. Uh, I'm going to get our entire church praying for the FDA. Um, because we need them to do some approvals in ways that they have never done before. I need you as a church to pray for $16 million in order to create a vector drug for human trial. We're going to be very specific about that. And let me tell you this. $16 million is nothing to a king who owns everything. Okay? So we're just going to unlock the door as best we can. Appreciate that. And I also want to communicate this. I love medicine. It means so much. I'm still praying for a miracle. That's what we want. Praying for a miracle for my wife so that she can see. And the day it happens, you will know it. Because I will be on the top of the church, yadaing, zamaring, and halaling my brain out. Just so you know. Okay? So, if you'd like to receive the prayer letter, I just need you to pick out that, take the comment card, say, please put me on Grant's prayer list. It'll come out later this week, and I will give you specific things about how you can pray for meetings in London and the FBA and all the different things that are going on. So appreciate you praying for us. Uh, been a long road, but a good road. This word is going to make some of you uncomfortable. Some of you are already just a little uncomfortable. But it's in the Bible, and so we're going to tackle it together. I worked at Brandon University Food Service as a part-time high school leader. Uh, and I worked in the dish pit. I scrubbed dishes, okay? That's how I made my way through high school. The, the food service where I worked was also a banquet facility. So on weekends, we hosted weddings and conferences. So often on a Friday or Saturday night, you would find me waiting impatiently for a wedding reception or a wrap-up so that I could wash the dishes and mop the floors. That's what I wanted to do. There was one wedding that I will never forget as long as I live. I knew it was going to be cool when a tiny little man in a black suit came back with a beautiful Polish accent and said, I need salt. I gave him a salt shaker. He said, no, I need salt. <laughs> okay, so I went and got a big thing of salt. I'm thinking, what are you going to put this on? And he invited me to come out and spread it on the dance floor. Because he said, salt was spin, spin. I'm like, okay. So I'm out there throwing salt all over the floor, not thinking about liability issues whatsoever. Because I'm a high school kid, I don't know anything. You want salt, I'll throw salt on the floor. And as I got ready to leave the dance floor, I looked up and this is what I saw. There was a group of men in a large circle with their hands on each other's shoulders moving in rhythm and swaying together. And every once in a while, they would charge the couple in the center of the room and shout at the top of their lungs, tack, tack, tack. <laughs> if you're here and you speak Polish, if tack is a swear word, could you let me know before the next service? I'm just saying. Okay, I think it means yes. But it, it, it was interesting. So the family was from Poland. They had a Jewish heritage. And they were celebrating in their culture's style. And it was a celebration. 
I mean, all of these guys moving in a circle and then this couple in the center and, and, and the way they were celebrating, it was unbridled joy. And then it became kind of crazy because they grabbed everyone. And I mean everyone, including the dishwashing staff. They absorbed all of us into the circle and you had no choice. You were compelled to join the celebration. There was laughter and celebration. I mean, they are laughing at me because I don't know what I'm doing, right? They go left, I'm going right. Cause a traffic jam. You know, I, then I start going the other direction and they're moving the opposite way. I'm, but they are just smiling and laughing. There was celebration and joy and hope. And there was criticism. Because some of my buddies that were working in the dish pit, they were like, this is nuts, man. Like, this is crazy. And it was. In a raw, joyful human sort of way. So far we've learned the word yada, which meant to, to raise your hands in the air in celebration and worship. Last week we added the Hebrew word zamar, which meant to pluck the string or to add a soundtrack to the worship of your life. This week we're adding a Hebrew word that I experienced at that wedding dance. The word halal means to boast, to rave, to shine, to celebrate, to dance, to be clamorously foolish. So when you halal God, you brag about him, boast about him, rave about him, celebrate him, and you're not concerned at all what anyone else thinks about your celebration because you're focused solely on the king of kings who according to scripture both dances and sings over you and you just get caught up in it and celebrate loudly. Some of the words we're going to learn are going to push us towards quiet reflection and meditation. Just so you know, this is not that word. That's next week, okay? This is not that. Some of you are just like, I can't wait to get to next week, okay? But stay here with me right now because it's interesting. Halal is the primary word for praise in the Bible. It's used more than any of the other seven words. It's the root word from which we get our word, Hallelujah. Okay, it's an exuberant expression of celebration. Whenever you hear hallelujah in church, all it means is praise God. Praise be to God. So when we sing the song, raise a hallelujah, you're actually saying raise a praise to God. And I was looking for like kind of some modern context. So when you hear Bruno Mars tell you that Uptown Funk won't give it to you, and in the course, he says, girls, you hit your hallelujah. I don't know if Mr. Mars knows it or not, but he's praising the God of the universe, just so you know, okay? 11.15, we'll totally understand that. 9.30, you're like, what are you talking about? Just say it, okay? Psalm 69, verse 30, I will praise halal God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. One of the things I love about the Hebrew language is that the words actually embody the emotion. In English, we use punctuation marks, right? Exclamation marks, commas, breath places, right? And in, 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 in Hebrew, the words actually embody the emotion. So for the record, there is no such thing as a sad or quiet halal. Doesn't go together. 
Now God's going to add another element to the fact that this word happens to be loud and passionate. Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly I will halal you. Psalm 109, verse 30. With my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord in the great throng of worshipers. In the great throng of worshipers I will praise him. So, yup. That's what it means. It means the kind of worship that God wants from his children is passionate, loud, and public in this context. You need to know, as a buttoned-up Canadian conservative Baptist, this is a tough one for me. Because this is about as wild as I get right here. (laughs) That's all I got for you, okay? Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Jesus loves your private worship. He does. But we are together as a church. He says, I want you to be loud, passionate, and public, which means this. Some of us, some of us need to take the opportunity to kick it up a notch. Ah, Thank you, Terry. God bless your heart, bro. I got one amen. That's awesome. That means to yadah a little higher and halal a little louder and to be okay with the zamar being a little, uh, right? Now, the Bible keeps going. It says this, Psalm 149, verse 3, Let them halal, praise his name with dancing and make music to him with timbrel, and harp. So it's musical, it's moving, it's loud, and once again, it's passionate and it's public. If you don't like it, don't write me a letter. Appeal to the God of heaven. All right? Now let's just let's just be honest. Okay? This is where it gets rough for some people. Because halal calls us out of our buttoned-up Pacific Northwest dignity. And it calls us to lay aside our inhibitions and kill our self-consciousness. Now, some of you are thinking, where in the world is Grant taking us with this? Could we have a really honest human moment? We can all get a little self-conscious when it comes to worship. There are times, honestly, if I go into a new environment, I kind of figure out what the rules are. And then I abide by the rules and stay inside before my hands do this. I kind of look up and down the aisle, just like what's going on around here. It's okay to be real because the truth is this. I think we all care what the people down the row think. Here's my question. Do you really know what they think? I've been on an investigative journey I have a lot of conversations with people in our community. I hear their perceptions about Christians and church. I hear their opinions about church scandals and the condition of the world right now. And one theme that comes up often sounds like this. I've heard people say these words. Why would I want to follow a Jesus when the people who claim to follow Jesus appear no different than me? They seem just as confused and just as anxious as I am, maybe even more so. Last week, I heard someone say to me, I'm looking for something real, and yet I see a group of people approach what they say is life-changing 
Very, very casually. So I have a question. What if the world is really looking for a group of people who don't care what other people think? Now, hear me well. That doesn't mean we don't care about people. But what if the world is really looking for a group of people who don't care what other people think and are only concerned with what God thinks and what God wants and what God is, is hoping to get from his people? What if something that was raw and authentic and passionate and life-changing so overflowed out of our hearts that people looked at it and said, I don't really understand it, but I want some of that. What if our worship became contagious? What if we lifted up and out of our regular life and every time we gathered together as a church, we did everything that we could to stretch and just brush our fingers along the bottom of heaven? I wonder what would happen in Bellingham. So I have a friend named Dennis. Dennis has been coming to CTK for two months. I got his permission to share a part of our conversation. He's just been investigating Christianity. It's actually here last night, okay? So all this is cool because he and I talked about it. Been here for two months. I asked him two weeks ago. I said, so like, please be honest with me. Honest question, honest answer. I said, was it weird for you to see people raise their hands in church? He's never experienced this before. Was it weird for you? This was his response. I saw, for the first time, what appeared to me as people taking God seriously. Now let's just be honest. We have no problem taking other things seriously, don't we? Some of you are squirming right now. It's okay, I'm squirming with you. We have no problem taking other things seriously. And before I start this section, I'm going to make you a promise. I will not shame anyone in the room who loves football, okay? So for the record, I love football. Can't wait for the season to start. I think we got a shot. I'm a 12. I'm happy with that, okay? So I'm not going to shame you. I just want you to stick with me, okay? I remember the first time I got to go to an NFL Seahawks game. I went with Pastor Sam Middlebrook. Some of you remember Sam, big Texan, led us for years on a guitar, loved him to death. He was a Houston, Texas fan. May God have mercy on his soul. Okay, so, <laughs> so we go to a game, and Sam, who's a big guy, is sporting Houston Texans colors, right? Top to bottom, proud Texan. That's how he rolls, right? We get close to the stadium, and we actually had what I thought was the truest Seattle Pacific Northwest moment that I have ever been a part of, right? Sam's wearing Texan gear. Everybody else is in blue and green. And this guy walks up to Sam and looks, he scans him from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet and then looks at him and in true Seattle fashion says, I'm really glad that works for you. For the record, you dress in the opposing team's colors in another stadium, that'll get you hurt. Not in Seattle, all right? In Seattle, it'll get you a hug. That's kind of how it goes. I don't understand it. But, but then we walk inside of the stadium, and I see a dude with no shirt, and it's cold, completely painted blue and green, and he's wearing a beak. And we look at that and go, that's normal. That's a real fan right there. Look at that guy. That guy is awesome. 
What's a fan? It's an enthusiastic devotee, follower, or admirer of a sport, a pastime, or a celebrity. We have no problem with that. In fact, we actually admire that kind of passion. And we step into church and somebody does this and we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Settle down. (laughs) Settle down. Why are we a little self-conscious? I think it's because we're not worried about being labeled a fan. I think we're worried about being labeled a fanatic. A fanatic is a a person exhibiting excessive enthusiasm and intense, uncritical devotion towards some controversial matter. We hear that, we say, I I don't want to be that. That seems weird to me. Different language, different part of a definition. A, A fanatic is a person with obsessive interest in and enthusiasm for something, especially an activity, for example, a fitness fanatic. And none of us want to go there, right? We don't want to be seen as a religious fanatic. In fact, and we think in our head, like, those people are nuts, right? And so this is what happens to me. I don't be, want to be one of those people, so I choose. I choose to play it safe. I choose to stay comfortable. I choose to do what I've always done, and then I wonder why my life doesn't appear to be any different than anybody else's. I have my own resistance to this word, just being awesome. But every time I come up against it, I can't think of any other verse than Galatians 1.10, which has become my own life verse that says this, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ I want to care more about what God thinks than what other people think. Because in the end, I'm going to answer to him, not them. All throughout scripture, God's been searching for people who will worship him in spirit. That means with your entire spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit of God into truth. Which means at the basis and foundation of all of our worship should be solid, biblical Truth. That means God is still looking for people who care more about conviction than convenience or their own reputation. So I'd like to propose a third category. I would call them faithful worshipers. We're not fans. That seems like too casual. We're not fanatics. That seems too extreme. And I'm not calling you to this, to this, this lukewarm middle. I'm just saying I think there is a place for God's family, and I believe that place is in the position of being a faithful worshiper, an enthusiastic disciple of Jesus who passionately worships an audience of one. And all of my focus is there. It's not here. All of my focus is there. It's not up here. All of my focus is up there, not on the screen or on that screen. All of the focus is up there. It's not here. There's a story in the Old Testament that speaks to all of this. Let me give you some history and context. King David is the king of Israel. He's been given the throne by God because the former king, Saul, was disobedient. God takes his hand off of him, puts his hand on David. And David, the writer of psalms, the writer of songs, the harpist, musician extraordinaire, begins to to unify the country and pull people together. 
As he's anointed king, he does something that means so much to the people of Israel. He actually gets the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God. There was nothing more important to a Hebrew person than the presence of God. He goes and gets the Ark and he brings it to Jerusalem. And David leads this processional, a parade, back into the heart of Jerusalem as the presence of God is reunited with his people in the capital city of Israel. We have a hard time contextualizing it. It's, a, it's the biggest deal there could have been. Okay, And David is leading this processional, and I'm going to put it as plainly as I possibly can. He's dancing in his underwear. All right? For the record, you can halal, keep your clothes on, here, okay? So it's Bellingham. We actually have to be clear about that stuff, okay? All right? So he's worshiping God, raw, unbridled, authentic, passionate, and, and honestly, it's a little different. A little different. I'm going to say it again. To a Hebrew person, nothing meant more. Nothing was more precious than the presence of God. To have the ark come home released unbridled joy. When the Toronto Raptors won the NBA title this past year, the nation of Canada, where I came from, they lost their ever-loving minds. They never even thought that they would ever win a basketball title, even though, you may not know this, but basketball was invented in Canada. What? I know, it's a shock. But the, the country went nuts. The entire city of Toronto came unglued. I mean, businesses shut down. People flooded the streets. It was absolute chaos. And that was just basketball. This was that multiplied by a billion. Okay? That's the kind of passion that was unleashed. And here's what happens. Parade's over. David comes home. The Bible says, When David returned home to bless his household... Michael, daughter of Saul, so remember now she's the daughter of the king who was kicked out, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. <laughs> Welcome home, right? <laughs> I want you to note something. Anytime there is authentic worship, there will be a critic. Every time. There's always someone standing there going, no, I just ain't right. You moved. Foul. Nope. There's always someone saying, people have just lost their minds. They need to get back in check, settle down, observe the decorum. I mean, we are dignified in the Pacific Northwest. Thank you very much. Can I challenge that assertion just a little bit? Have you ever read the story of the prodigal son? There's a dad every single day goes outside of his tent and paces back and forth waiting for his prodigal kid to come home. He's looking on the horizon day after day after day after day and he is wrapped up. He's heartbroken because his kid won't come home. His kid thought he knew better. He went away to a big city and he, and he threw away his inheritance and the dad just can't give up loving him and he keeps scanning the horizon day after day after day and one day out of nowhere he sees a little figure off in the distance come across the horizon and the Bible says that the dad does 
what no dignified Hebrew patriarch would ever, ever even think of doing in the presence of his community. He picks up his robe and he sprints to his kid as fast as he possibly can. And the whole community goes, and he doesn't care. He sees one thing. That's my boy. And there's a critic. There's an older brother standing in the corner going, I stayed here. I played by the rules. I did what I was told. And you're going to throw him a party? And I'm so thankful that I serve a God that says, yes, I'm going to throw him a party. Because my love overflowed in a very undignified way and I don't care. Listen to David respond to his critic. David said to Michael, the daughter of Saul, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else in his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will celebrate. I love this next line. You might want to underline it. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. David's saying, when it comes to celebrating God, I don't care what you think. I'm going to put all of my energy and passion into worshiping Jesus. I'm going to put everything, my heart, soul, mind, body, and strength into worshiping Jesus. I mean, I don't think twice about tailgating all day, painting myself blue and green, devoting four hours on a Sunday afternoon to watching a game and then spending the rest of the week rehashing what happened in that four hours. I don't think anything about that and I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying this. If I spend that much time and energy following a human football team, how much more should I be doing when I'm worshiping Jesus, knowing that when it comes to a win-loss record, he wins every single time. Somebody say amen. David's saying, look, here's the deal. David's saying, I'll never forget how God rescued me and allowed me to kill both a lion and a bear when I was a kid. He's saying, I'll never forget how God showed up when I walked onto a field and took on Goliath all by myself, except with the power of God. I'll never forget how God put a new song in my heart when I didn't have a new song to sing. I will never forget how God preserved my life when I was running around the countryside trying to, to save my life from Saul. I will never forget God's goodness to me, his kindness to me. I will never forget God's love for me. And given the opportunity, I'm going to worship him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to use my body. I will halal Jesus with public passion because he alone is my audience of one. And I only care about what he thinks. Let me speak to possible motivations. Because I knew when we started this series that there were risks that we were going to take. I knew there were people that were going to say, oh, okay, Grant, I know what's going on here. You're trying to get us over here to that like charismatic thing over here. Like, yeah. I don't want you to try this because I'm asking you to. I'm asking you to consider whether or not God's asking you to. I'm just a human being. I struggle with my own inhibitions every single week. 
It took me a long time to get to here because I was actually taught growing up that this was not allowed. But then I got so desperate for a touch from God that when he reached to me in my brokenness, I couldn't help but reach back. So, I'm not trying to get you to just put your hands in the air. I'm not trying to get you to shout and move. In fact, I want you to keep your clothes on. I'm just saying, okay? (laughs) I'm just challenging you to create space in your heart and in your head and to take a risk to connect with God in a new, fresh, authentic way without getting stuck in your own inhibitions. Now, let me be clear. If the God of the universe whispers in your ear ear, at any time when we're worshiping, stand still, do not move, be still and know that I am God, do that. Listen to him. Here's my challenge. Just make sure it's him and not you. If God calls you ever to slip out of your seat and kneel humbly, okay. If God calls you to sit while everybody else is standing, okay. If God calls you and lifts you, to engage body, soul, mind, and spirit if he prompts you to move. Don't listen to the court of public opinion. Listen and obey him. So, for those of us that this is a little uncomfortable, we're probably all still looking for an escape clause, right? There's got to be a loophole somewhere. Let me close the loophole. Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything... Oh, and by the way, I did a Hebrew word study on the word everything, and it means everything. everything. (laughs) Let everything that has breath... So that means if you're upright taking nourishment and breathing right now, this is for you. Let everything that has breath praise, halal, the Lord. So unless you're dead, you qualify. So we're going to have a moment We've been kind of practicing for the last couple of weeks, just trying to give ourselves some space. Next week, the word is barach. It means to kneel in quiet reverence. We'll go there next week. But this week, we're going to try and halal to the best of our ability. And that's why it's a challenge, because I don't want you to think about what anybody else is doing around you. I just want you to, okay, okay. And it might be <laughs> You laughing at me? I get it. I understand. 
I'm laughing at me too, right? It's like, that's a, that's a move to me. I know that's really bad for some of you, but that's actually a move for me. Um, I'm going to throw in finger guns next time, all right? So, <laughs> but it's an opportunity to just check our heart. What's my motivation and why? We want Jesus to be in the center of our worship. And now we have an opportunity to do that. I'm going to pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for Christ the King Church. I thank you how uh, Laurel and I have felt just soaked in their prayers this past week. I'm so grateful. And Lord, now as we come into this place and into this time, I pray that you would just move inside of our hearts and spirits. God, this isn't about anybody else. This is about you and your children. So bless us in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for watching. We're so glad that you joined us today. Once again, we hope you'll get involved in biblical face-to-face community wherever you happen to be today. If you'd like more information about Christ the King Community Church, if you'd like to give online, or if you'd like to submit a prayer request, or even get connected in a small group, you can find out more about us at CTK dot church.